I think Daniel lived up to his namesake. Thank you for praying. Uh, it's, it's good to join in prayer with all of you. That is something that we consider essential in our time together in Sojourners. I just want to uh, say thank you all so much for the many times, countless times that we've been up here asking for prayer for my dissertation. It is now in the hands of a proofreader. It means that I was able to close the file on my computer and not reopen it. First time in like four years. So it was amazing to get through that step, and you prayed me along the way. So uh, this morning is an opportunity for me to walk through uh, how I took this uh, PhD program uh, and, and used it as an opportunity to advance a very personal issue to me, and it was missions. Uh, back in the early 2000s, the Lord allowed me to go through my education stateside and then go in through education in Italy, Bible education, in order to participate in a church plant in Rome. And uh, being a part of that team was an amazing experience, being with indigenous leaders from all over and in our local work of trying to really uh, bring scripture to the people, very difficult people to bring it to. But it was uh, a bit of a confusing time, because if you recall in the early 2000s, in terms of uh, biblical and theological studies, there was a heavy influence of postmodernism. And postmodernism really advanced cultural and linguistic relativity. This relativism was the idea that really, if you're in an indigenous area, don't bring something foreign. And something foreign in postmodern terminology was scripture, because after all, that came from other cultures. And how would it really work out in terms of the culture? But evangelicals really wanted to make sure that they were bringing scripture, but they're listening to this postmodern cultural relativism, and so what would they do? Uh, during those years, missions literature advanced these theories and these strategies and these practices and these testimonials of listening to the culture first, listening to the pagans for what they found culturally significant, what they found religiously significant, what they found affected their lives, and then find the Bible verses that seemed to correspond. And if there was correspondence, then we could teach those passages. We could teach those concepts, but not all of them. So there are entire cultures where uh, missionaries do not teach that God is a Trinitarian God, that he is triune. Um, others that would not say that Jesus is the Son of God the way we would recognize him as the eternal God uh, who became man, but instead just the chief of all the prophets. And in this way, maybe we have less offense, and then maybe the gospel can take root within the structures of their culture. Does that sound right to you? What about these examples? Let me pop up on the screen and ask you, what's wrong with this picture? In the Pacific Islands today, there is pig theology. The Jesus is the pig of God who was roasted on our behalf. An adaptation of Isaiah 53. You laugh, but behold, the pig of, lamb, uh, of God, right? Not the lamb. In southern Africa today, Jesus is prayed to as the chief ancestor who mediates for us or for those that practice uh, uh, ancestor veneration, but along with the others, just the best of them, so pray more to Jesus. Does that sound like any North American or Roman types of religions? What about in Latin America? Jesus is the redeemer of who? Of those that have been oppressed politically and economically. He's the redeemer of the poor. Well, is that the redeemer in the way the Bible preaches it? And this is being advanced by missionaries. 
What about in North America that we see in churches, even down the street perhaps, that Jesus is the giver of what? Worldly wealth and success by grace through faith. What's wrong with this picture? Well, for me, the most wrong of it just kept coming back and back and back for many, many years. Uh, It was around the year 2016 that I was, well, I was off the field, I was in seminary, and I was studying, and I was reading wildly uh, on missions topics with this goal to understand how the nations worship Christ rightly. But what I found were so many publications where he seemed to be worshipped wrongly. And what really came to the fore was uh, either of these questions, and then both, really, and they're up on the screen. Is Scripture authoritative and sufficient? to make Great Commission disciples in every culture and generation? Is this something that Scripture can accomplish? Can the Holy Spirit really use His Word to make disciples His way? Or must we do cultural and linguistic relativism? The second question is, does Scripture instruct missionaries then how to faithfully engage cultures with biblical truth? I know how you want to answer. But how you might answer seems oftentimes simplistic from the world of missiology, mission theory, and mission strategy. But these are the questions, aren't they? Well, I set out in my THM, the Master of Theology, some years ago, back in 2015, 16, and 17, to really start to try and crack this nut. What is it about these modern proposals that seem so wrong when we look through this lens of uh, evangelical doctrine, of the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, and the, the fact that it is verbally inspired, revealed by God for our good through all, uh, all human history? And I wanted to try and understand the proposals that were out there. And that pig of God idea or this redeemer of the poor type of idea, this really comes in under this, um, I guess, a discipline now in missiology called contextualization. Now, when I was doing the THM thesis, and that was really just a 180 thing, and this is a 420 page thing, Um, but (laughs) at that point, I just really wanted to see, can we redeem the term contextualization by infusing it with a little bit more of a conservative bibliology, a conservative view of soteriology, salvation? Uh, And what I had to learn in my PhD process was, no, you can't redeem these terms, but you can create new ones that get us back to the simplicity of Scripture and really give us a foray into having meaningful discussions about missions. So just reading off the slide here, the occasion for doing the PhD work was this, that unbiblical missiological theories and practices, like the ones I just said, contextualization, that really characterizes evangelical missions today, and it really gums up the discussion and takes things into very complex dimensions that really strip us away from the simple discussion of missions that we want to be having. And with that, many missionaries are confused. They tend to get, oh, am I missing something? Oh, thank you. Many missionaries today struggle to make Scripture relevant to their pagan audiences. This whole concept of making Scripture relevant is so high on the priority list, and you can understand why. If you're trying to lean on culture to tell you what is significant, then you have to labor over what parts of Scripture can match that request from the pagan. So these are very confusing situations in missions today. 
And missionaries are then confused about the most simple things, how to proclaim the gospel faithfully in places where it hasn't yet been proclaimed. All right, so this led me into the study. Uh, and perhaps before I go on, I just want to recognize somebody very special in the room. And you know that I'm going to say my wife, Irma. She was my muse in this whole thing. She was the one that would listen to everything as it was being formulated for years and years and lived it out on the mission field as a church planter with me in Italy. Um, and then next to her is my father. And at the end of the row are two of my three boys, the ones that probably can sit long enough and actually learn something. Um, <laughs> But right in the middle, I, I just want to take a moment uh, and, uh, and, and introduce you to my doctoral advisor, my uh, mentor and my friend for many, many years now at TMS, Dr. Jim Mook. Would you stand up so everybody can greet you and say thank you? He didn't know I would do that, but he is sitting in the front row, so there you go. And his lovely wife, Nancy, has been such a support to him, so he could be a support to me. Uh, so when we talk about this study, we need to go into a new direction. Contextualization isn't going to work. Missiology as it is now has a lot of hurdles that don't seem easy to overcome. So how about a new term? A new term that addresses the biblical, theological, and historical foundation over 20 centuries of faithfulness to show us what Faithful Missions is. So I've launched a term in this dissertation. It's probably the only technical term you're gonna hear this morning. You came in and you're like, dissertation, this is gonna be awful. I won't even be able to spell the things that are on the screen. Uh, but no, this is probably the only one, but we want it to be really technical, and I thank Dr. Mook so much for his help on this, and it's missiological propositional assertion. Missiological propositional assertion. People are calling this the MPA model. All right, it's a technical description of just simply biblical missions. Now, there's three terms that are involved in it, so I'll just lay out how I'm using them. Missiological, missiology, is to talk about cross-cultural context and our approach, especially to overseas work, or where there's uh, a different culture in front of us. Uh, what is our approach from our cultural vantage point and the cultural aspects involved in reaching them uh, with biblical faithfulness? Now. The second term is propositional. You've heard of propositions, but in this term, we're talking about the content of Scripture. A proposition is as simple as a word that you find in Scripture that God wants us to know because he has inspired it, he has revealed it, and he has left it eternally for us so that we would understand the meaning of Scripture. It's also the syntax, the, the entire phrase in which it is couched. It's the paragraph in which that, that passage lies. And to be propositional is to assume that God has much to teach us from Scripture, and he wants to use it in proclamation, and that's where it ties in with missiological. And what is assertion? Assertion is, again, a technical term to talk about verbal proclamation of the truth, specifically understanding that I, as the proclaimer, hold the truth, because it's not mine. It's revealed by the Holy Spirit through his word. And what do I do with it? I assert it, I verbally proclaim it to who? To someone who does not know it. Now that seems to defy everything we talk about with having humility in front of people. And I understand the caution that we need to have when we're doing this missiological propositional assertion, but we do stand by the word of God and we stand on it. And we understand that when we're in a situation where somebody has not heard the gospel proclaimed, that it needs to be asserted. And it must be propositional. 
And that's what we're talking about when we talk about missiology. So with that, we can move on to just a quick definition, just to help you uh, grasp some aspects of what this MPA thing would be, this missiological propositional assertion. So I just broke down a very long sentence for you. This missiological propositional assertion describes the theological activity of preaching and teaching. Can it get more simple than that? And what is it that we're preaching and teaching, the content of biblical truth? That's the propositions. And what's the goal? It's to intentionally target a culture's beliefs and worldviews. You see, where there is no biblical truth there, what is there? There's error. There is an offense to God. And yes, we understand that there can be uh, an offense in sometimes when we're not being culturally aware enough to, to not offend on simple uh, uh, physical or outward types of ways about expression, but the gospel offends specifically because it intentionally targets a culture's beliefs and worldviews which are fallen, which are sinful, which are corrupted and need the Lord to infuse with his word. And because of that, then missiological propositional assertion does not accommodate the wording or the concepts of biblical truths to the beliefs and practices of a spiritually blind audience. If we're searching for cultural relevance with Scripture, we're on the wrong page. There is no page for that in Scripture. And so the goal then, what is it? It's reproducing maturing believers. It's to see local churches where they now indigenously do this. They hold Scripture in their hands, and they proclaim it to their people. And yes, they'll have better words than I do when they are communicating it. They'll have better customs in which to show how Scripture has transformed them. But the goal of missiological propositional assertion is very simply that, preaching and teaching Scripture, intentionally targeting with the truth, without accommodating that to false belief so that biblical doctrine can be reproduced in the local church by making maturing disciples. Doesn't that sound like missions? To this room it does, to this room. But for others it's gonna take at least 420 pages. <laughs> That's just how it is. But I'm not giving all of that to you, but I do just have one hour, so we'll keep working together here. Let me explain the thesis statement so that you can understand the, how I was approaching this project. Well, the study does two things. First, it demonstrates that Scripture is, in effect, authoritative and sufficient to deliver the propositions that are necessary to make great commission disciples in every culture and every generation. And if it can demonstrate that, then it can do something else. It can define the parameters, the boundaries of missionary activity so that there can be biblically faithful text-based activities front and center in the line of sight of every missionary that goes out and of every sender that is wondering how to read a prayer newsletter, of every strategy that is in the works, that is being shared at a conference, that is being talked about for prayer in small groups. Well, we want our biblically bound parameters that protect text-based activities like preaching and teaching the word and translating and expositing the word and, and raising up local believers. And so that is what I will do. I'll demonstrate what scripture says about scripture in the role of missions. Then we'll describe how this MPA model 
actually works, step by step. So it's been a joy to work on this project and get to that type of uh, realization for myself first and foremost, and now to be able to present that to you. How do I do that? In three chapters. 420 pages for three chapters? Yeah, they probably told me to cut it down, and I didn't. And you were praying about that, too. But the first chapter is historical. It's 20 centuries of walkthrough. And that's really where the bulk of it was. It was something like 170 pages. We're devoted to looking at how uh, history bears out biblical faithfulness. And what are the insights? What would we actually call biblical uh, faithfulness, what would we call missionary success? Well, you're going to see a uh, walk through chapter one. Also, chapter two then is the biblical portrayal. Take a step back. Let's talk about what the Old Testament would lay out as the attitude that we should have towards Scripture, a propositional hope that it would actually change the nations one day, and then how the New Testament actually accomplishes that by starting the process of reaching the world through the Great Commission. And then the third chapter is where we really get into the constructing of this model, and we try and make a step-by-step -step guide based on a few important discussions, a, a language discussion, a theology discussion, and uh, again, more of a cultural uh, discussion at the end. All right, you with me so far? Okay, let's jump into chapter one. Chapter one is the history of biblical missions. And it's through the lens, of course, of what we're talking about as being biblical missions. It's through missiological propositional assertion because there's many, many books out there on the history of missions that might characterize it differently. How people bartered with people to buy cheese in the marketplace and maybe insert something about Jesus. We're not talking about that. We're talking about uh, this proclamation of scripture. We wanna look for 20 centuries. And when we do, and we survey the historic missionary activity of the church, what do we find? That we can start to evaluate the different strategies and the practices based on this lens that we have. And when we do, we find we can draw a certain kind of spectrum. Just think of like the UV spectrum that goes from one side to the other. Um, you could think of uh, anything where uh, you have a left and a right. And what we're looking through in the centuries that I evaluate in these big periods, these eras, is were they more toward this cultural accommodation type of motif, this idea of listen to the culture and then we'll insert some scripture where it might fit? Or are we talking about that propositionalism, this absolute drive toward the text that we might assert that which is lacking so that they might believe and mature as disciples? So we're going to look along that spectrum. All right, let's do that. In the first major era, we're looking at the early church. So this is after the time of the apostles. Remember that I've got a biblical chapter, so that comes next in chapter two. But we start looking at how is the Great Commission actually applied in the lives of, uh, of church leaders and then their congregations all throughout the Roman Empire. And mainly what we find is text-centered activities, applying scripture in, in a couple ways uh, through apologetics, uh, these debates, going before kings, going before the emperor, going before um, the people to proclaim the glories of Christ, and uh, writing theological treatises, and also doing Bible translation into vernacular tongues so that people could actually be in touch with the text, trusting propositionally that God's word would affect the transformation that they wanted to see happen. So in the first two centuries of the church, this uh, is uh, pretty much how it works. It's missiological propositional assertion. It's this understanding that the text will drive all of our activities. And so I looked at some of the 
the writings of key figures of the time. And um, uh, as I looked at their writings, then this is what we understood, that, that their approach to um, evangelism and their approach to developing the church was always going back to scripture, and where it wasn't exact phrase for phrase from scripture in their exhortations or in their pleas to people, there were echoes of scripture that made uh, people reflect that this wasn't human wisdom that was going to transform our society and transform our lives and our church. It was sourced in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, things start to change in the third, fourth, and fifth century of the early church. We see the Roman Empire expand, and with it, the, the reach of this, uh, this official state Christianity. And as, as that happens, what we find is there's less contending for the faith, and uh, there's more of an appeal to old Greek philosophy that happens to be lingering around in these pagan cities. And so by the time you get all the way up to Augustine or um, Ambrose of Milan, we have a compromised propositionalism. There's a lot of allegory, a lot of Greek philosophy being infused, and less and less echoes of scripture. Would it surprise you then that when you move into the medieval times, the medieval church, a span of about a thousand years, that there's a paradigm shift in how to do biblical missions? It's not quite biblical anymore. What we find in this period of time is that uh, any of the proclamation that was really rooted in the text of Scripture has largely disappeared, and it's been turned more into uh, some of these, these plays and non-propositional, non-text-based types of forms of worship, the icons of the church, the altars, the symbols and the rites that don't really lock in with what the prophets and the apostles necessarily said, and there is a drift. We also find that as the medieval church goes on, more and more philosophy. With the start of scholasticism, the rise of the universities, what do you think they're studying there? Greek philosophy and a little bit of scriptural treatments of it. And so theology is now philosophical theology. Now add to that the Crusades and you get p political engagement. Uh, it kind of sounds a lot like North American Christians today. You know, there's a certain sense of Christendom and we, we stake our claim uh, saying that it is Christian. What we find is a lot of times these political engagements really hinder evangelism. Now, what is the flag that we're actually waving? So um, the Middle Ages, is, uh, it's a dark time in this sense. The revelation of scripture uh, takes a really big hit, and it doesn't resemble the early church. Now, there are reversals to that. There are these early moments where men like John Wycliffe uh, or the Waldensians uh, or others, John Huss, uh, they would try and get scripture in front of the people. They would translate into their languages. They would be persecuted to it. How many of them were killed simply for the fact that they were evangelizing based on the word of God. So we see the pendulum or the spectrum here switch to a cultural accommodation. You see that star there. It's no longer propositional, but there are some of these men that were faithful. We praise God that they were faithful because that leads into the next phase, the Reformation. Now, sola scriptura, that's one of the five major phrases, these, this foundational principle of the Reformation, which says, Scripture alone. God saves on the basis of his word. This is channeled right from the early church. You just kind of have to skip about a thousand years of church historians and theologians to get back 
to that clear proclamation of the gospel. And just like in those earliest centuries, just like was true of the prophets and the apostles, there would be martyrdom, there would be blood in the streets, specifically because they're trying to evangelize and uh, expound scripture for the sake of making maturing disciples. And all of that under sola scriptura goes against the established state religion, the Roman Catholic Church. Well, with that then, uh, this apostolic perspective, uh, do you, how do you think it's going to go with the Roman Catholic Church? Are they going to take this? No, they're going to mobilize. They've got the money. They have the willingness. They have the self-righteousness to steer up entire movements of missionaries to go out in the world and try and beat the Protestant missionaries to China, to other places. And what do they do? They send out these counter-reformation missionaries. And who are they? They're the Jesuits, the Franciscans, and the Dominicans. Now, interestingly about the Jesuits... They tend to have so many incredible strategies of how to do cross-cultural communication and contextualization because it's all cultural accommodation that nowadays, and you won't be surprised when you see the next few slides, evangelicals read their stuff to get inspiration on how to reach people with the gospel. Were the Jesuits, the Franciscans, and the Dominicans reaching people with the gospel? No, with the false gospel. I don't know why evangelicals read this stuff. All right. Well, we move into this, uh, this modern era around the year 1650, going all the way up to the birth of another era in 1910. Now, what's significant about this is we have two columns here because there are two things happening, and you see two stars on either side of the spectrum. In the propositional camp, what we have is this, this real fire among these conservative Protestants that would have listened to men like Calvin and Luther and Melanchthon and Zwingli and, and looked at these examples of self-sacrificial living, and they would say, we will keep that up in our countries. And so what do they do? They bring these missiological propositional assertion activities to their fields. Men like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, William Carey to India, Adoniram Judson to Burma or Myanmar. Uh, and, uh, and then um, and Taylor, he would be uh, in China. And this is the great century, this, this era where there's tons of evangelism based on scripture. There's Bible translation, there's church planting happening, and simultaneously there's also a whole lot of bad coming out because the Protestants in the universities, start listening to the Jesuits. Start adopting everything they've done because it seems like it's gonna work. Seems like this is the trick to get people to find cultural relevance. So medieval philosophy starts to link with cultural relativism, these Jesuit methods. What do you have? Cultural accommodation thriving, so it would seem, just as much as propositionalism. Really at odds. But then when you get to 1910, we get the age of ecumenism. And this is where propositionalism really, really takes a hit. And this is because there's a paradigm shift from those very men that were uh, conservative evangelicals, these Protestants that went out like Hudson Taylor, like Adoniram Judson, like William Carey. And now many of them have bought into the lie too. Around 1910 in Edinburgh, there's a great conference and it sparks this idea of multi-confessional unity. Maybe we can all just get along. 
And maybe it doesn't have to be so much Roman Catholic against us evangelicals, and maybe really what we're after is just more social programs. So throughout this period, by the 1960s, 1970s, uh, Roman Catholic documents, Vatican II Council comes out, and what do they propose? All of the strategic methods that the Jesuits have done, and who reads those documents? The evangelicals. They start under Billy Graham's leadership, under um, other types of ecumenical movements. They start to adopt these ideas that we need more social programs because that's where cultural relevance is mainly felt. So we need to reroute our efforts. Now evangelism looks like soup kitchens, looks like digging the well. Does that look like any of the missionary newsletters that you might have read from people in the past? Yeah, because that hasn't ended. We have been through today in this uh, evangelical ecumenical age. A social action focus, cultural engagement done in this way, means that now the redeemer of the poor, we'll go fund that so we can help Jesus uh, rewrite uh, cultural wrongs and, uh, and structures of society, and we'll look for transformation there, not necessarily on the heart individual level. Cultural studies then from the 1950s on become the big thing for schools, schools like Biola, schools like Fuller, other schools that would adopt cultural studies programs that would have actually very little to do with scripture. So when we talk about cultural engagement, it's now shifted to social action, which is from the age of ecumenism. Well, we could go on and on with all these different types of strategies, but it does leave us with some conclusions. Evangelical missiology today has forgotten historic propositionalism. Evangelical missiology today has embraced these non-propositional, or might I say even anti-propositional activities as gospel work. They're following those who found their prosperity in false gospel on the field. There's almost no ability to even critique unbiblical missions. We don't see it much in print these days. I'm, I'm somewhat of a lone wolf with, with probably another uh, a handful of men that have gone before me publishing really good works uh, to help us realign with biblical missions. But there's almost no understanding of what that would be. How would we focus on proclamation? And so that's where a survey like this really tends to uncover a problem. And what's the solution? It's to recover biblical missions. And so in laying out missiological propositional assertion, the hope is we can go from cultural accommodation, which marks most evangelical missions activities, and start working our way back toward propositionalism. That is my hope and my prayer. Well, this leads us to chapter two, because of course the question is, well, you've done this historical survey, but you haven't gone back far enough. Where does that affect us uh, from the Great, pers uh, Great Commission perspective? How does that fit with what is revealed in the Old Testament? Well, that's what chapter two is. We're just really trying to you know, uh, put the, the bait on the hook, try and get it in the fish's mouth, and now that we're there, let's challenge if they are doing biblical missions according to the New Testament and according to what was uh, pronounced through the prophets in the Old. Well. So in describing missiological propositional assertion in Scripture, we need to connect the New Testament to Old Testament. Uh, we also want to then focus most of our attention on the New Testament. But we start in the Old, and there are a few ways that I uh, start in the Old Testament, and um, I'll give you four major discussions that happen here. And it's first, you need to understand that when we talk about missiological propositional assertion as biblical missions, we're talking about a feature of the New Testament. We're talking about something that is revealed in the Great Commission from the risen Christ. 
But before the cross, there are inklings of it, there's prophecies of it, but there's not biblical missions happening in Old Testament Israel in the same way. But what we can say is there's propositionalism. There's a, there's a hope that God's word is what will transform the individual soul and from there then transform the world. And Israel understands as a kingdom of priests, that is their role then to be the mouthpiece for God and live their example of the faith. And yet that's different than the Great Commission, as you'll see. So one of the first things is we hold on to this propositional hope by looking at some of the passages that, uh, that really affected ancient Israel. Psalm 119, what better can you ask for there? Uh, we're talking an entire, uh, you know, well more than 100 verses just on the value of Scripture for uh, transforming one's life and their witness. So I spend uh, some time in the Old Testament looking at Psalm 119 and how that emphasizes the spiritual need of every soul to live according to the scriptures. And we find that propositionalism really alive and well in believers from the Old Testament. Uh, what does scripture do? Scripture communicates righteousness to believers so that they can live according to scripture and be assured of their salvation. That's a work of the Holy Spirit through his word. What does scripture do? It helps the believer in times of trial, throughout the life of faith. This is something that they would live and transmit. In scripture, it also encourages the believer then to witness to others. And there are great psalms that talk about witnessing to the nations, but that has to be first uh, born in an individual soul. And that really is what we see as uh, the effect of Psalm 119 uh, showing us that propositional attitude of Old Testament believers. Well, like I was mentioning, Israel's cross-cultural witness, how they did that was not exactly missions. Uh, Jonah is a bit of an outlier for that because we have a message of judgment that God is using. And as we've spent our time in Jonah, we certainly understand uh, that God wants his word to be what the Holy Spirit uses to transform people. And that's what you see in Jonah. But it's not pervasive in the Old Testament. And so those are the questions that I have to raise. They're the questions we should be asking. Was Israel's role intended to be a missionary mandate the same way it is in the New Testament? And if not, or if so, how is the Old Testament proclamation activities uh, somehow going to feed into what we see in the New Testament? So there really isn't a strict continuity between what uh, the Old Testament presents as a propositional witness about Yahweh and what the New Testament presents as missiological propositional assertion, but the attitude certainly matches because believers always love God's word and they always want him to transform others the way they've been transformed uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit using his word. Well, going on then to the next uh, I think what I'll do is I'll just skip a little bit forward so that we can move in and we'll have a chance to look at this. But the, the main thing here for the, the third point was that, you know, this whole talk about making Scripture relevant, let's not forget that Scripture written by prophets and apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this is God's eternal word, word revealed, it's always relevant to all cultures. Just think of the, the, the way... Jonah 4 or Nahum 1 uses these perfections of God that he self-declares, right? Uh, Exodus 34, 6 to 7, Yahweh passes in front of Moses, and what does he call out? He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious. You heard this in first hour too, didn't you? But you heard it in the Psalms. 
slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Well, that's the reality of God. It's it's what Moses needs to take to his people. And part of that, those expressions, is what Jonah takes to the wicked Ninevites in Jonah 4.2. And that then becomes for them a hope in his compassion, in his loving kindness now spilled out on them. But then in Nahum 1.3, those same perfections of God are used, but in a different generation and ultimately a different context. And they become perfections from Exodus 34 repeated for the purpose of judgment. Yes, God is forgiving, God is patient, but in Nahum 1.3, God's patience has run out. So the main point here where it affects missionaries is for us to, to uphold that hope that God's word is relevant. How he wants it applied when we proclaim it is his doing. It is his work. And in this activity we can, of, of preaching God's word, we can be confident of this very thing. The transcendent truths are transcultural. They can be tailored to foreign contexts for the purpose of that assertion, and that is a confrontation of what they believe on the ground. Let God's word do its work. That's a good message for all of us, isn't it? Well, Old Testament goes on uh, in order to show us that ultimately uh, the, the real message bearer from the Old Testament perspective, the one who will see the nations witnessed and transformed by the power of the word, is a future reality in Messiah. Jesus is the coming prophet of Deuteronomy 18, and the the apostles understand that in the New Testament context. Uh, And so does that generation of Jews. Uh, The Messiah comes as a teacher in Isaiah 30, and this is for him to teach the law to the nations, and that's a future reference. Isaiah 42 says that the Messiah comes as the preacher of his law, and that will affect as far as the islands. That's Isaiah 42. And so this is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's not lost on the apostles. This now goes then from propositional theological witness about Yahweh to now this lived-out proclamation Uh, according to the Great Commission. So I want to take you then into the Great Commission just for a moment. Um, I should say at this point, uh, there's just so much material here uh, that uh, Joe and Abner were kind. They're giving me another opportunity in about uh, a month or so to drop back into the Old Testament, New Testament, and spend more time camping out in all of this work to really establish missions done God's way. So I'm looking forward to talking more through this with you. Uh, But here again is our uh, walkthrough opportunity, so I want to give it to you. Uh, When we talk about New Testament missions, uh, first we need to look at the Great Commission. So Matthew 28 is a great passage. You know it well if I were to read it to you. It's one of five that I analyzed that represent the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says this, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, this section makes three fundamental observations about the Great Commission when we look at all the passages together. And uh, these uh, really help us set 
missiological propositional assertion in view because now we're looking at what the risen Christ has commanded and we're eagerly asking how to do it. That's what I wish more missionaries were asking. What does scripture tell me to do? Not just what I see before me that I could do. Right, and so three observations are that the risen Christ commands this very thing, missiological propositional assertion worldwide until the end of the age. Other passages say uh, to the ends of the earth. Well, secondly, the missionary task is to make disciples how? By going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Of course, we understand that if we're not the goers, we're the senders. Uh, We also understand that there is a going when it's just to the neighbor. But certainly, the nations are in view as well here. And so, missions needs to be thought of missiologically, that cross-cultural aspect. But we need to be thinking about that biblically. Baptism is full immersion water baptism. There is no other way that, um, that is prescribed by the risen Christ, and it is one of the earliest marks of being a disciple, a biblically faithful disciple. Where there is no full immersion water baptism, there isn't a disciple yet defined as a disciple, is not a disciple made. Um, but it doesn't end there. The, the, uh, the missionary then continues with the teaching. We're looking for maturing disciples, not converts that you check off of a list just because somebody accepted a tract or somebody stopped to have a five-minute conversation or seems potentially interested or just smiled at you. But oftentimes, this is how missionaries can get into this pragmatic uh, kind of task of just making sure so much witness is out there that there's no time for following up. But teaching is what then goes into the minds and the hearts of a convert so that they become a disciple. And it's an exclusive message. And the missionary preaches what John the Baptist preached and what Jesus himself preached and what all the apostles then preach, repent and believe in the gospel. This is all borne out just in the Great Commission, let alone from uh, later examples. But in the New Testament section, I look at some practices of, uh, of New Testament missions. We want to see if missiological propositional assertion really is the standard that we need to uphold, because this is kind of a big deal. If we want to do biblical missions, uh, who did it before us? Who did it even before in what history would say? What do we see in Paul's ministry? Now, I've given three examples because there are three Uh, direct speeches where Paul goes into an area, and we talk about missiology, we're talking about cross-cultural context, and he goes into a place where the gospel has not penetrated and where they might even operate, like in Lystra, by a different dialect, and he goes to proclaim the gospel, and we see what missions does in these examples. Because there's such uh, direct uh, quotations, we can actually understand the words that he uses, not just a description about them, and we can start to measure uh, what missiological propositional assertion is uh, with pagan Gentiles. And so uh, Paul in Acts 14, Paul in Mars Hill in Acts 17, and the Thessalonians, what we learn about their conversion, tells us a lot. And a couple major things that it tells us is that evangelism is the confrontation, that confrontational assertion of false worldviews and beliefs, as we've defined it, and that's what we see here. 
We also understand the role of culture. You need to study culture. You want to learn the language. Why do you want to do that? Not simply just because, you know, I didn't go to Italy simply because I loved Italy and all things Italian. Everybody does. That's called vacation. <laughs> no, to go there and to learn the language and to love the people and all of that transcends past that. And what is it all about? It's trying to facilitate communication so that I can call them to repent and believe. You understand how that works? That's biblical missions. If I'm off message, I'm off mission. Now, from these uh, actual examples, we can derive uh, certain principles. And this is the next point. That there are New Testament principles that emerge from other passages that really bolster our understanding of what Paul held dear when he went and he did these, um, these pagan Gentile encounters, and really all of his missionary journeys. And uh, one of the first points is that the missionary must preach for people to believe. Duh! Except how much Roman Catholic thought there is in the evangelical world that you don't need to proclaim the gospel, you just need to smile a lot. You just need to act like a Christian, and they'll figure it out. No, as we understand, dead men can't feel. Dead men can't feel. How will they perceive something spiritual if their spiritual eyes are darkened? No, it is the clear proclamation of the word that God uses to open up the spiritual eyes of the dead sinner so that as light floods in, they're confronted with the beauty of Christ and the ugliness of sin. And just like in the Pentecost sermon with Peter, they say, what must we do to be saved? That is the response to that gospel call when it is the effectual call that strikes the heart. And so what the missionary must do in order to see that heart struck is to follow the Lord's method for it. Now, what does Romans 10 say? It says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The word of God. So why would you just preach your testimony? Why would you just do a song? Why would you just do a little juggling act and a little skit in the street? Why would you send a short-term missionary team over to just perform and do something non-propositional? We're talking about scripture. If it doesn't get before them, should we have any confidence that they will be struck in the heart by the Holy Spirit? No, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God sends his herald with the message of good news in the face of a very sinful life under the bad news of God's wrath. And then the liberation for that. All needs to be transmitted by the missionary. And what we see is the Holy Spirit blesses that. Should we have any confidence that, that people will believe if it's anything short of a repent and believe gospel? And should we have any uh, surprise then when we see that churches aren't growing, no matter how many times they're out evangelizing? Let's do things God's way, and we'll see what he does with it. He's sovereign over salvation, right? Cultural relevance is best understood, and this is the second point here, when, or, or the third point there, when, uh, when God speaks to the heart, as he regenerates that sinner by opening up their spiritual eyes, all of a sudden scripture is relevant, and that's when they cry out, what must we do to be saved? More relevant than that, I can't imagine what scripture would be. God empowers that. That's 2 Corinthians 2. God will save people, and then Scripture will be relevant for them, and it will be the means by which they grow. That's Colossians 1 and 2. 
Well, a conclusion here, let me just ask a couple questions. What is the central focus of biblical missions? What, what should be our driving goal? Well, it should be the proclamation of scripture. And if it's not, you might not be doing biblical missions. If that's not what you're supporting, if you're not supporting an evangelism of repent and believe the gospel according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, then you might not be supporting or doing biblical missions. What about exposition? Are you clear with what the text says? After all, don't you want them to understand Paul's message? Don't you want them to understand what Peter said? How will Peter respond to those that are, are touched to the heart? With just a simple little story? Something about uh, food? Something about culture? No, let's make sure that we are expounding God's word his way. That's going to lead in many places to the need for Bible translation. And of course, making disciples and training elders that can then indigenize these truths more and more and get to the heart level of people in their culture, that's what we're all about, reproducing churches full of maturing believers. So another question then is, how do we engage cultures biblically today? How do we do that? Well, you start by proclaiming scripture like the apostles did. Don't be afraid of it. It's a simple reality that that God uses his word, which is deeply complex and yet simple enough for children, and, and, and so deep that scholars will never reach the bottom of its understanding, but the meaning is clear. So let me just remind you of how we define biblical missions. MPA there, missiological propositional assertion, simply this. It's that you would preach and teach the content of biblical truth with the goal of intentionally targeting a culture's beliefs and worldviews without accommodating the wording or concepts of biblical truths to those beliefs and practices that this spiritually blind audience holds, so that what? So that biblical doctrine is reproduced in the local context. That's what this is all about. Do you have a role in that? Absolutely. Be the herald of good news. Make sure you open your mouth. All right. This moves us then into chapter 3. Because it is important that we talk about cultural aspects. After all, we were talking about missions. Uh, and I've spent, at this point, I think something like 300 pages just giving biblical and historical information. And so there is a sense to which the, the appetite is, is ready, it's growing, it's wetted for some missiological straight talk. Just tell me what I need to do in a culture. Well, we'll get there, but there's a lot more before it. It's the early part of chapter 3. So there's some goals here, and that's the last one, is to really lay out a step-by-step, here's what you can do to be biblically faithful. Uh, In missions, or as you're supporting missions, this is what to look for. But we start by expressing even more theologically and uh, even in terms of language and hermeneutics and all of this, we need to talk about the strategic basis for everything that we do. And that basis has a little bit more theory involved. And then we can get to that step-by-step model. Okay, Looking then at this, uh, uh, this chapter, there are three preliminary dis- uh, discussions that need to happen. And we need these so that we don't repeat the errors of other evangelical missiologists. We don't want to just immediately jump into building a model of how to reach a certain culture with all the cultural bells and whistles that we might throw in there or be reading about or things that interest us in that culture. And those are all really helpful things, but 
that type of cultural approach can oftentimes sideline the text-based activities that we need to focus on. So in order to build our model practically, these are the three discussions that we need to have. So first, I raise a discussion about language theories and linguistic matters. Uh, that God's intended meaning, the meaning of Scripture, of every proposition of Scripture, is delivered in such a way as to be significant to every, any reader. Now, that's not to say that you deliver it perfectly in a foreign language. It's that God has delivered it perfectly in his text. God has delivered his word perfectly through the chosen vessel, this prophet and apostle that has written these words. And it doesn't matter the language, the culture, or the generation. Where there's an effort to be biblically faithful in Bible translation, then we can say reasonably that God has delivered his word now in this language. And it's all right there. We focus on the text, and that's why we're text-driven. So biblical uh, trans Bible translators, when they are faithful to preserve the meaning of the original text in the language forms that they have to deal with, some are primitive languages, some are extremely complex, some are interladen their terms with a lot of cultural phenomena, they have to study these things. They do so because of their absolute commitment that God transforms souls based on his word. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we can also be confident of another thing. Let's say now you're in a culture that has the translated text. Okay, well, I don't know that culture very well, but I know that I can help them understand Scripture that I, I understand is a faithful translation. And one thing is true. The more that they understand the progress of Revelation from Old Testament to New, the more their lives are sanctified, the more they, this, this means of grace in their lives is transforming them into the image of Christ, what's going to start happening? They're going to see that God is setting them apart. As they're maturing in the faith, they actually look less and less like their own people. Now, they're still fully cultural. Many of you, and we've seen this over the last few weeks as we just asked where people are from and what languages they know, you're entirely rooted in your culture, but you are more like an Old Testament believer or more like somebody from some, uh, some bush tribe that loves Christ than you are perhaps to your own neighbor in your culture that doesn't know the Lord. This is because the Lord is bringing us into a conformity of lifestyle, a conformity of thought, and now we are guided and we live according to the bounds of Scripture. And that's true of believers everywhere. And we see that the more we progress in our understanding of the progress of Revelation, the more we come to love God the way the ancient Hebrews did, or the, the, the earliest believers did, or our brothers and sisters in the faith martyred for the faith in the early church, and on and on. So scripture gives us so much confidence. The more we read it, the more we become like believers of all time. Now, second discussion is theological. So that's the language side, the, that the meaning is rooted in, uh, in, in God's intention for us so that we would be conformed to his image. And the second theological discussion is that the biblical propositions transform local people without having to appeal to local cultures or worldviews in order to take our cues. No, actually, it's quite the opposite. Take a look at some of these little fine points. God means what he says in his word. Again, another kind of duh moment, right? But the meaning of Scripture then 
can be applied to any context because as the Holy Spirit is operating uh, in the hearts of people as they're maturing in his word, what they find is they are a believer rooted in their culture and yet they're being conformed to the image of his son and they're deriving all of the significance, all of the relevance from scripture and now scripture is becoming indigenous. So the meaning of scripture applies to any context and we just hold that that is true. So that if we're going to go out on the mission field, we have absolute confidence that this isn't a foreign gospel. As long as I can eliminate some of my foreignness and point people to the text, if I can stay text-driven, we have the best likelihood of seeing the church grow faithfully and look more and more like the saints that Scripture represents. Uh, The third point here is that the Holy Spirit teaches us truth. And by his word, then he makes believers everywhere more like Christ. That's what we've just affirmed. All right, going on then, this is where we start to get into some more cultural matters. And this is an important segue into the step-by-step guide. Uh, Missiologically speaking, missionaries and local believers can be confident then that when they do cross-cultural engagement and they are biblically faithful, uh, they can test their faithfulness. And they can test it according to three parameters. These parameters serve as a a set of boundaries. See, because as the missionary becomes more culturally aware, the more they study the language, the more they can appreciate the food, or the more they can um, learn the the, the people and the thoughts behind the words that they're hearing and the nuances and all of that. They need to be really careful that they stay text-driven. It's very easy to veer off into sociological strategies into cultural studies, the things that now really titillate the minds of evangelicals everywhere. Now, we're not denying that, but we're setting protective boundaries so that we make sure, first and foremost, we're preaching a repent and believe gospel. So these boundaries really kick in. So the missionary becomes more culturally aware. He needs these boundaries to protect missions from activities that can distract from proclamation. All right, so what are these boundaries? Well, there are three distinct items that we want to keep in mind, especially because when we get into a step-by-step guide, you can just kind of lose it. So let me read these. I know that it's getting a little small. I see some squints. Three parameters or boundaries that protect text-driven proclamation. Now, the first is theological, okay? Theological. You need a negative view of culture. This is, this is really different than many evangelicals believe. You have to have a conservative understanding of scripture, salvation, and culture. And that's a negative view of culture. And what is that? It's that the Holy Spirit is inviting you to evangelize. You are going and proclaiming scripture. You are doing this work of propositional assertion, understanding that there's a reason why they don't naturally have these understandings. There's a reason that they need the gospel that you are preaching. It's because they're culture and their society, and they themselves, because of sin, are corrupted and broken. You're coming in with life-saving and life-changing words, if the Holy Spirit will use them. And so if you have that theological cap on, then you can think linguistically. Here's another parameter or boundary. It's linguistic, that, that you need to transmit God's message, not something that you've just cobbled together, not something that is, is somewhat doctrinal, but really just kind of opinion. That would be your own message. And God does not promise to use that. He does not promise to transform lives based on your message. 
he does promise to do so based on his. So you want to measure cultural relevance, then start looking for that indigenizing effect of it. If you're in a tribe and there is, there is a clear presentation of the gospel, a clear understanding of scripture that you can expound to them and they hear it and they're touched to the heart, then what happened at Pentecost is now happening in that place too. And that indigenizing effect is that they repent and they believe and they now chase after Christ. They do like the Thessalonians did and they turn away from their idols to the living God. That's 1 Thessalonians 1. So we're looking for that. Now, linguistically speaking, are you clear with what God's word says enough to be able to then transmit that? Are you preserving that by studying it, uh, interpreting it correctly, or has it just slipped into your own message? And then finally, transformationally. I'd say above all, you're after transformation. And it's great if you can dig a well. It's great if you can do orphan care. These are wonderful things, but they are secondary to preaching the gospel. There's plenty of non-governmental offices, NGOs, that can handle those things and do those things regularly. Why are you there? You're there to preach the gospel because you're seeking transformation based on God's word. So if you can, you can hedge in your work as, with the singular goal of seeing God transform lives and seeing people now image Jesus Christ, then you're on the right track. So labor toward the goal of making maturing disciples and reproducing indigenized local churches. All right. Well, I'm going to skip one thing that shows that I, that I didn't do all of this in a vacuum. I didn't just kind of make this stuff up. But in my study of scripture, I was able to test it against other models. And I found that there were two, uh, one in an earlier generation, one most recently, uh, that have, uh, have, have looked at biblical missions from one distinctly a cultural view and one from the bounds of scripture. And we have landed on the same things. And in some ways, just by God's grace, I've been able to perhaps expand and give a little bit more insight. So I'm going to ditch that for now and we'll move on. On because this is what you really want to see. You want to see the step-by-step guide that answers the question of how we do missions. So there's, there are two major categories here. And the first one is you need to prepare so that in time, with that preparation, you can assert. Let's go from preparing for missions to doing missions. Now, the reason that I break this up in this way as a preparation phase uh, with an A, B, C, learn, practice, and observe is because many missionaries out there think that if they just do all this stuff, they are being a faithful missionary. No, they're on the road to being one. They're being faithful in the preparation phase. But we need to move into the assertion phase. So quickly, what is the preparation phase? So here, we're looking at three major areas. Learn, conservative evangelical doctrine. Uh, learn how to do original language exegesis. Now, I'm, I'm talking to men here in this, this, uh, this context. Uh, learn how to do exegetical theological method. Make sure that your theology, the words you use, actually match the text itself. And then, of course, learn the target language. You can start all of that at home. This is pre-field stuff. Uh, you're going to keep working on it when you get there. Now, in terms of 
practice. So you're learning, but you're practicing. While you're at home, why aren't you preaching if you're a man? Why, why are you not teaching other women if you're a woman? Why are you not practicing all of that that you would like to see as part of the reproducing effort of a local church? Do that work. And then, of course, you want to be taking the time to observe all the customs, practices, worldviews, and beliefs, and try and observe in order to understand. But if you think that's the end of missions, then you're not thinking biblically. Where does this go? goes into assertion. The assertion phase is a bit longer, and sorry, it's a bit small here. That's why I'm using this little laser pointer. So we prepare to assert. Our preparation leads to our assertion. Very simply, you need to evangelize the people. If that involves an interpreter until you get language proficiency, great. You need to be translating scripture if it's not already translated. And then absolutely, you don't evangelize unless you confront sins and false belief. Most of what we consider evangelism is oftentimes pre-evangelism, which has its place. But don't expect God to use that in the same way that he will when you confront sins and false belief. Repent and believe the gospel. Make sure you're preaching the gospel. Make sure you know it. That's why you have a preparation phase. All right, so that's evangelizing. But this is going to keep going while you move into the next phase. It's to preach expository uh, sermons because as the church starts to form, as converts start to turn into disciples, they need to regularly assemble for the preaching event. Make sure that the work you do on the Sunday morning revolves around preaching God's word. And then you should prefer Bible books to topics. After all, I want them to hear mostly from Paul and Peter and the apostles and the prophets and not from me. If I'm choosing the topics, I might not be helping them the way I think. And then uh, you're going to continue not just preaching, but teaching on a regular basis, Bible studies, making sure that they understand how to apply God's word so that they, they practice doctrine in their real life. Match your beliefs with your practices. Okay, And that's ultimately going to help them as they indigenize scripture to evaluate their customs and their practices so that what results is a church that eliminates some of those cultural sins. If you have a negative view of culture, instill that so that they can wipe those things out as much as possible. Uh, that also then leads to the next phase, which is to identify maturing disciples in the local church. We want to make sure that we do practice full immersion water baptism. Pursue church membership so that they understand leadership and the types of uh, accountability structure that's so necessary for their growth. And this will also be how that we can test if they're even responding to all that we're teaching. Can you measure growth in their lives? That's our shepherding oversight. Did you realize a missionary has to do all this? It's right there in scripture. Encourage missionary uh, ministry participation as they're growing in the Lord. And make sure that you're training church leaders for the local church. That's why we focus so much on training leaders. We need to train them in how to read scripture, preach scripture, how to counsel people and raise them up in the faith because we're after transformation. 
uh, number four here is to train them to mature in holiness and avoid this admixture of the world with matters of faith, the syncretism in their personal lives. What's happening behind closed doors when they're together? Does their worship form in the church still involve pig's blood? Does it still involve some type of tribal element? Is there song singing? Cultural and yet in conformity with the words that would express our faith according to scripture. And are people witnessing? Are they involved in evangelism and outreach? You see, if you don't have these things, you don't have the mature church that we're going after. So we're on the road for that. But did you know that a missionary in training needs to be on his road or her road to be able to partner in this way? This is what we're talking about when we talk about church planting. Now, the last thing I think is exciting. Train the new leaders to plant new churches. And what you'll find is that they will continue to eliminate any foreignness that you might have brought. And more importantly, they're going to be more effective at preaching and teaching in their language, understanding even cultural sins and, and ways to encourage their people. Now, you're not going to like this slide. It puts it all together. It, it's nothing new. It's what you just saw. And uh, in my dissertation, I try to get it all on one page. That's why it kind of looks like this. So don't try and read it. But the main point is this, and there's just a few things to point out. We talk about the preparation phase. Learn, practice, observe. And then we talk very distinctly that real missionary work is what happens when you're starting to learn, practice, and observe, and put it into evangelism. So evangelize the people. Preach expository sermons. Teach expositionally in the context of the local church. Identify maturing disciples in the local church. Uh, train church leaders for the local church. You already saw all this stuff. And then you will see that this is going to repeat over and over and over again. And you will just now be in a participant role as they're doing the work on the ground. That's actually how the church has continued all these 20 centuries. So let me make a few points, though, in this little black box here, and this is what I want you to really understand. First, the missionary is central in most of these steps. We don't just drop the Bible into the jungle and hope it springs up healthy churches. Uh, there's a movement called the disciple-making movement or uh, you know, church growth strategies that actually believes that because you know, they, they believe the Holy Scripture is written, uh, the, the, the Scriptures are written by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does this to, to, to raise up people, but they forget that God sent the missionaries all throughout Acts and uh, to help uh, really strive for holiness and root out error. So let's be very clear about that. The missionary is central to accomplishing most steps. It is leader-led assertion. The second is simply what you see. Prepare to assert. Can't stress that enough. Prepare to assert. Preparation phase is distinct from the assertion phase. And that's how we can mark our own faithfulness in our desire to see God's work and that text-driven activities actually bear the fruit that they're called to bring. Another thing is, like I said, it's a cyclical and reinforcing process as we plant new churches, we will see uh, new missionaries raised up from among the people, and that's our heart's desire, isn't it? That they would hold scripture in their hands and pass it forward, raise up more and more believers. 
And keep in mind that our focus is not on quick conversions. It's on maturing disciples. And also recognize that although I've laid this out this way, I'm sure there's contexts where certain things are flip-flopped and things are happening simultaneously. So, um, but what I want is for people to understand that there is a sense of sequence that Scripture gives. And it starts with being biblically faithful yourself. All right. Where does this leave us? With a checklist for you. The conclusion for the dissertation becomes a checklist for you. Here are some major insights that clarify the attitude and the practice of biblical missions or of missiological propositional assertion. And I would just ask you, do you believe these things? Have you, do you find these things to be true? Uh, now, some of it's just more content rich here. The first one is that biblical propositionalism, this attitude about text-driven uh, activities is what characterized the hope of Old Testament and New Testament believers. But do you believe that that's your model to follow? You need to. Secondly, missiological propositional assertion or biblical missions throughout church history was the mark of a missionary's faithfulness. Do you believe that it still is today? Who do you have on your fridge that you're praying for? Pray that they'll stick with text-driven activities and please the Lord and pray that the Lord will raise up believers because that's how he's going to do it. Thirdly, cultural accommodation theories and practices like pig of God kind of stuff, this contextualization strategies, these flat out deny the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And be warned, they will never say that. They claim to be evangelical, and they are not. When you see cultural accommodation strategies, you confront them on it. Confront them. Or pull your support or make sure that you write to those publishers, whatever it might be. You need to abandon those types of practices if we're going to do the Lord's work in the years that we have remaining. Uh, a fourth checklist item for you is to understand that the rationale behind all of this isn't pragmatism. It isn't just making Scripture relevant. It's trying to be linguistically aware, trying to be theologically supported, trying to be missiologically helpful but it's mainly to keep us focused on proclamation. Preach and teach the scriptures. That affects you with your neighbors. That affects you at the grocery store. We make it missiological when we talk about missions in this sense of cross-cultural um, environments, but don't you have cross-cultural contexts, even in a parking lot, even in a hallway here at church? And fifth and finally, the MPA model, this biblical missions model, really can serve as the practical toolkit that believers need. So shouldn't we use this to draw us further into Scripture and not just immediately to all the, the titillating ideas of a culture and just start to interact on that level? No, prepare to assert. And what we'll find is that even just the simple list, because it comes out of Scripture, makes us desire more and more Scripture to inform our practices in everyday evangelism, wherever we might happen to be. My prayer is that as you look at this long and complex definition of biblical missions, that you'll see the simplicity of it. Be text-driven in everything that you do with that propositional hope 
that the prophets and the apostles had. That God will use, if he so chooses, your words because they're not your words. They're words that are eternal words captured in understandable language. And will you hand those to somebody else? That's the message that we promote, is Christ and Christ crucified to the glory of God our Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to share the goodness of all that you had me to study in these years on biblical missions. And I pray that with all the complexities of the argument, we would just stay singularly focused on preaching and teaching the gospel. Thank you that our hope is tied to your word because we want to see the Holy Spirit transform souls that one day will transform cultures. Lord, would you use this in some particular way for each of us that we could apply it to our lives and challenge our convictions, challenge our practices, and challenge just the overall concept of what it means to be text-driven. Lord, we thank you so much, again, for all that you've provided, even in this hour. Through your Son we pray. Amen.